The Waves of Tech is the down-to-earth tech podcast for you, your family, and your friends. We remove all the complicated, drawn-out explanations of technology and simply talk about how technology is influencing every element of our lives. From social media and the cloud to tweeting and mobile communication, we talk tech in a different way. So plug in your devices and listen as we get ready to ride the waves of tech. On episode 481 of the Waves of Tech, browsing the internet, the death of tech pioneers, and the buying of personal financial information. Find recent episodes of the podcast and connect with us on social media by heading over to thewavesoftech.com. Well, Steve, we are a day late. Unfortunately, work did get in the way for both of us yesterday, but we are here and we're happy to everybody who have subscribed, downloaded, and listened to this show. So how are you doing tonight? I'm well, and I guess I would say we do know our priorities. And when you were growing up, I always talked about I worked to put beans on the table, basically, so that you could eat. That's what we had to do yesterday. We had to put some beans on the table. So we had to uh, slide this over a day. But um, this is going to be, I, I'm not sure what the right word is. It's going to be kind of a different episode for us. I, I'll just put it that way. Yeah, it is. If uh, Based on the, the intro that I did there, it's a little bit different. We're going to be talking about three different tech pioneers that have died over the last week. And that is unusual for us to talk about so much death associated with, with the technology industry. And some of these are pioneers and some of them were independent daredevils that were trying to make a name for themselves and trying to prove their theories and whatnot. But what I wanted to start out this episode, Stephen, talk about was browsing the internet. Is it still a thing? And it's funny enough, when we hit record or we ended recording last week and I was like on the internet and I was waiting for something to load or uploading whatever. And I was like, I was like, I want to do something on the internet. But I'm like, do I listen to music? Do I go to Twitter? Do I go to Facebook? Do I go to a, a website that I'm familiar with and read some articles? And I'm like, it got me thinking, I'm like, we don't browse the internet like we did in the early 90s when it first came out, even early 2000s. I mean, we would spend hours upon hours of just typing in random stuff, going through all the search results, getting to all these different websites. And I think just with the advent of robust websites, like if you subscribe to a sports or a journalistic um, publication, you are going to that on a routine basis and reading that material and consuming that material. The advent of social media kind of built in this this sort of like virtual browsing method where the internet comes to you rather than you going to the internet. And I just want to know, Steve, when was the last time you actually got on the computer simply to browse the internet? You know, it's it's a weird thing to think about. I don't really browse YouTube. I don't really browse Google. I don't really browse podcast players. I don't really browse anything anymore. I mean, I guess you can look at like my Twitter feed as I'm sort of browsing through when I start looking at hashtags and different comments and stuff. But browsing the internet is not a thing anymore. I'm just curious where we lost it. And when was the last time perhaps you even did that yourself? This is very interesting. I hadn't thought of this. Actually, I did a browse waiting for you to join the conversation here. But it wasn't the same kind of browse that I would say I did many years ago. So it's it's a very interesting point that you made. I think the no, a lot of the novelty has worn off in terms of, can this darn thing really find what I'm looking for? And that the internet, the web, is more of a, a presence now, um, more so than, I won't say a gimmick in the beginning, but it was very scaled back, very minimal, minimalistic. Today, it's very robust. It's broad. And if the content is not available on the internet, uh, then it does not exist. It probably hasn't even been invented or talked about yet. 
I guess I used to put in just random things to see what would come back. A lot of this was before the major powerhouses uh, um, with search engine capabilities. But I think part of the difference in, in why part of this has, has changed, Dave, is, is twofold. One, certainly being social media. I think social media has just everybody totally consumed. It's right in their face. You know, what's my brother or my friend doing? We, we just can't get rid of it. And the second aspect of that, and it's kind of correlated, uh, but is our phones. Our, our phones have kind of changed how and what we do um, with these internet products or services. We're very dialed into specific things that our phone does, whether it's notifications or looking at the weather or whatever the case may be. But you're so right, Dave. I just don't uh, get up from the dinner table and go, excuse me, I'm going to go browse the internet. I just don't happen anymore. No, it's it's it, and it's, it was a unique thought that just popped in my head one day. I'm like, we don't browse the internet anymore. Like that was a huge thing when I was growing up. It was what weird thing can we find, and what weird website can we visit, and let's see if anybody's talking or writing about this. And I think you're right. The novelty of it has worn off because at the time you have this new information stream that you can just randomly put in, and you can just spend hours upon hours. And maybe it was different because. Now, utilizing the internet as we know it is a lot more personal now. You know, we have our own feeds and we have our own websites. We have our own bookmarks and all those things. And I remember browsing the internet with my friends, my high school buddies, my brother, my family, you know, my, my siblings. And that's, I think, where we've shifted from this communal, like, let's see what weird things we can just type in a search engine and find. I think that's gone away with, like you said, the advent of social media. I never even factored in just having our phone and just having anything readily accessible where we don't ever have to wait to find information or search for it or surf for it. It's just there and we know it is. So yeah, I just want to start the show off with just a random question of if, is it a thing? If anybody out there still browses the internet or has a different interpretation, make sure you guys head over to the wavesoftech.com and hit that contact page and, and let us know what you think. No, Dave, because I don't even think I browse when I'm quote bored because I have specific apps on my phone that I do certain things with, whether it's news or weather or whatever the case. Exactly. I just don't arbitrarily put in a word anymore into a, quote, search engine and browse the information superhighway. The superhighway. That was a thing. <laughs> well, Steve, let's shift over to our first story of a NASA legend, Katherine Johnson, who she actually died at the age of 101 years old. Steve, I cannot imagine living past 60, let alone 101 at this point. Um, but if you guys are not familiar with Katherine Johnson, she is a NASA legend. She is been called a, quote, human computer. And she was a brilliant research mathematician that helped change the face of NASA. And if you go, NASA sent out plenty of several tweets and posts about her. She really contributed and was a real obvious trailblazer in a quest for racial equality, contributor to the, the United States first triumphs in human spaceflight, and a big, big champion of STEM education. And she was, according to the NASA administrator, quote, she was an American hero and her pioneering legacy will never be forgotten. And most importantly, we know that she herself was asked by astronaut John Glenn in 1962 to, to famously double check the numbers for his 62 orbital mission. And he asked directly that that Johnson rerun the calculations prior to his launch. Granted, this is, you know, 62, it's prior to any uh, calculators or supercomputers or anything like that. But it became a really pivotal moment in the, in the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union. And she was the first American, or Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth. And it was all based on Catherine Johnson 
Nelson's work. And just a pretty incredible story, Steve, behind her. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2015 from Barack Obama. And just her work and her legacy actually filmed became a film in 2016, the book Hidden Figures, The American Dream and the Unsold Story of the Black Women Who Helped Win the Space Race. Great film. I remember talking about it here on the podcast. If you've never watched it, definitely rent it, find it, buy it, whatever. But it's pretty incredible, Steve, as you look through her history. She had some of the greatest contributions to space exploration. It, it was so paramount that someone like her made her presence known in NASA at that time. And for that, you know, I'm forever eternally grateful. And also everybody in NASA just knows of her ongoing and continual contribution to the successes in STEM education. So uh, dead at 101 years old, but what a life and what a legacy to leave within the space industry. What do you say about a person that in those days, Dave, fought the racial boundaries, fought the gender boundaries, fought the engineering uh, battles? crossed over with, with mathematics and to prove or theorize that you were correct to thousands of male engineers. It's quite a feat. She's a hero in my book, not only with her mathematical skills and her tenacity, uh, but things that I, that I have read since her, her passing, just her as a person. And I think it's important, Dave, to pay tribute to people like this. And hopefully, as Barack Obama did, we can do it before somebody passes, not after. And that younger people take note that you can break ground, that you can revolutionize something, that you can think outside the box, that you can think in terms of the deep, deepest parts of space and with a human mind and some knowledge can take you anywhere. And she has proven of that fact. You know, Dave, you and I both love space and my wife uh, just gave me a air and space museum by the Smithsonian Institute. It's it's a special, I think, fiftieth edition on the the entire space program, going from Gemini and, and through, and talking about talks about all the astronauts and some of the technology and some of the things that go on that or went on that we really don't even talk about. She is one of those people behind the scenes that that made things happen, and I salute her. Yeah, absolutely incredible contributions to to not only equality, as you mentioned, uh, breaking down some of those those racial barriers and you know gender uh, issues that were going on in the '60s, and that was very clear cut in both the nonfiction book and the Hollywood production, you know, and just incredible to to have that mind at that time, and she was the reason the U.S. was successful, and I think that's you know ultimately the the biggest contribution that she she set off the the space race and made it happen because of her mind and because of her capabilities. So pretty incredible. It's it's sometimes Steve, these these names don't make the headlines, you know, year after year. One, they've retired from work and they're contributing in other forms or fashion, but you have larger tech companies like SpaceX and Tesla and all these other big corporations that are taking up the headlines when it comes to to aerospace. And you can talk about Strata Launch and what Paul Allen did and you know Blue Origin. Those aren't only making headlines, but these are the people that allowed what's going on today happen. And, you know, setting that foundation and that framework for research and development and mathematics and engineering, Katherine Johnson is just top notch, one of the best in the business. And it was done 
just with the mind, just with the mind, nothing with computers, nothing with software, nothing with applications. It was all done just from her brilliant mind. So yeah, pretty incredible story. Rest in peace, Catherine Johnson. I know we'll be talking about you definitely in the future when it comes to space travel and NASA. Another pioneer, Dave, is um, Larry Tesler. And I think a lot of things um, that we take for granted every day really have a backstory. And how did some of this functionality come about? In past episodes, we've talked about the inventor of the mouse or the internet or various kinds of functions like email. Somebody had to conceptualize that, put it into code and make it work. As we know, the company Xerox in the 1970s really came up with a lot of this. A lot of these functionalities that we use today and actually spun companies into existence like Microsoft. Larry Tesler uh, was one of those that worked for Xerox and he came up with the concepts and eventually the development of cut, copy, and paste. And I tell you, I could not go through a day if I didn't have those functions. When, when I'm posting scripts between servers and running scripts and doing all kinds of things, if I had to type all that lingo, let's call it, into a command prompt or, or a PowerShell or whatever the case may be, constantly to do various functions, oh, I'd be finding a different line of work, I tell you. Eventually, Larry Tesler went to work for uh, Apple and was involved in some of the early days of, of the Lisa and some of their other products. But as we bring things, these things up, let's don't forget about the people at the grassroots that have really brought not even the high-level stuff, but some of the basic functionalities of what we use every day as a part of our life in our technology world. Yeah, you're right, Steve. In the past on our, our podcast, we've talked about a variety of things. The inventor of the mouse, you mentioned the inventor of the internet, the inventor of now cut, copy, and paste. And don't forget, we even talked about the inventor of the password. Of all things that we just take for granted today and that we know is necessary, the password. Someone had to look and say, hey, we have a lot of individual user information and files that are out there. Let's protect them. A true industry pioneer. And I think when you look at Larry Tesler and what he was able to do, you're exactly right, Steve. He has created so much efficiency in the way I do my job. And I know a lot of people do our jobs now. It's not like the old typewriter days where it was just everything, you know, boom, 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 fresh words, everything's new. I can't tell you how many times, Steve, I'm going to count tomorrow, how many times you use my copy and paste function because I use it all the time. I cut from emails and I paste in new emails. I cut from documents and I put in, you know, other documents. And there's so much that goes on, you know, from proposal to to authorizations, everything in between. And you can look at it with budget spreadsheets and everything. Just everything has a cut, copy, paste function. And yeah, very simple. But at the same time, you said somebody had to lay that that framework and in that concept of you know, how do we demonstrate and how do we use cut, copy, and paste? And I'm, again, forever grateful for, for someone like Larry Tesler, you know, who is, who is uh, you know, that has been now deceased. But, you know, an early figure at Apple, you know, someone who worked, as you said, at Xerox, just uh, someone who's just sort of flown under the radar over the years and has had major contributions to the industry and maybe hasn't had all the accolades just because of maybe where he worked or who he worked under. But yeah, definitely a person that, uh, you know, unfortunately died at the age of 74, but someone who continued as a computer scientist and a user interface guru to really change the way we utilize technology and the way we see technology at the same side. 
This is one of those components, Dave, that I've been involved with computers since their inception. And this is still one that I believe is magic. How can you highlight something, click it, and move it somewhere else? Or create a copy of a file? It is magic. It's truly magic. Certainly, there's science and math and computing engineering behind all that. But this is one of those functions. I mean, it's almost like inventing the on-off button. It's just, you got to have it. And, you know, to kind of put it in a different perspective, when the first iPhone came out, Dave, it was a, it was a number of versions of the operating system later before it ever had copy and paste. The original iPhone didn't have those capabilities. They had to eventually figure it out and get it into the iPhone. It's always sad to see part of the legacy, part of the history go by the go away. But uh, we appreciate the pioneers of what we do and what we love every day now. So one other story, Steve, about a, a death of somebody within the technology space. And it's this is a very interesting story. And if nobody's familiar with who Mad Mike is, uh, his name is Mad Mike Hughes. He actually died um, this week after crash landing his homemade rocket. And essentially what Mad Mike was doing, he was building rockets to see with his own eyes whether the Earth looked like a Frisbee or not. And he is a self-made engineer. He was he is a flat Earth conspiracy theorist. And he died on February 22nd after a attempting to launch uh, about 5,000 feet, if I'm not mistaken, with a steam-powered homemade rocket out of Barstow, California, which actually isn't too far from where we're at. He actually died at the age of 64. And it's pretty incredible, Steve. We'll have a link up in the show notes, as you were mentioning pre-show, about the video. And it looks like the parachute deployed too early and caused the accident. But I was also reading some reports that um, upon launch, that it looks like the rocket appeared to rub against the launch apparatus, which may have torn the parachutes that were attached to it. And there was a, a large group of people from uh, the Associated Press that were there reporting on the launch. And of course, Steve, we know risk in space travel and launching rockets is an inherent risk. You know, we know we've seen from the space shuttle, we have seen from SpaceX that have had uh, catastrophic releases. And we're going to see that with any sort of homemade rocket too, no matter how engineered it is, or how many scientists you have on your sides, things are going to happen because weird things happen when you combine fuel and speed and uh, friction and everything else in between. But it wasn't the, the first time he has launched, he had actually in 2018 successfully launched to about almost 2000 feet. This was in a actually earlier version of his homemade rocket. The launch was a success, you know, but he told that in 2019 to space.com that the landing out in the Mojave Desert would actually was pretty hard on him physically. And he actually caused um, a, a compressed vertebrae in, in his back. And so obviously there were some difficult and, and painful landings, you know, you know, from there that he had to work on. But it's 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 just another sad story, Steve, of just lost within within the tech industry and the space travel industry. And yeah, Mad Mike was was his own his own guy, his own conspiracy uh, conspiracy theorist. And there's probably a lot of good reasons with with within his camp that why he was doing what he was doing. But always some risk associated when you combine a lot of these different um, components, as I as I mentioned earlier. So you can profess to be whatever you want to be, but that really doesn't mean you're an expert. That really doesn't mean you have the the true definition of really what that is. And although we all have our own perceptions, our own theories about most anything in life, part of the reason I even bring this article up, Dave, is there's a 
technology relationship when it comes to individuals like this who are self-motivated into bring into light what their what their thoughts are building your own rocket that in in itself is a feat but i think there are some areas that people need to really rethink that why is there in certain agencies all these various facets of engineering safety and the, uh, often there are still related problems to be able to be successful takes I, I certainly believe a, a team in today's world of technology. Unfortunately, technology failed this individual uh, when the chutes got tattered and the rocket didn't fly that well to begin with. If you watch it, it kind of goes a little squirrely and then comes um, straight down back to earth. No recovery mechanisms, no, no safety alternatives or anything. It's like I die or I'm successful. And I, I'm not sure that's the way we want our science conducted. I think it only brings agony, defeat, sorrow, in where potentially we could use that mindset, some of those thoughts to do it appropriately and advance mankind. I'm sorry for the individual's death, but I'm sorry the world is round. It's unfortunate that people have to go out that way, Dave, and attempt to prove some kind of theory. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, Mad Mike was a professed daredevil, and he's had plenty of circumstances in his his life where he is you know, sort of proven himself, you know, within that line of work. And yeah, I mean, he, he truly thought something was, was not the case, you know, as, as a round earth or a flat earth, frisbee earth, whatever you want to call it. And he wanted to visually see it with his own eyes. And that is not the first person. And that won't be the last person to kind of come with that theory. But again, you have to look after yourself and take the right precautions. As you said, no emergency deployments, no, no backup systems, no, you know, no significant sort of engineering background, you know, um, associated with that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a, very unfortunate, untimely death for him and, and any of his loved ones. It's just, it kind of, like you said, brings up the fact that there are hundreds of people that are looking at making sure these systems work properly. And there's reasons NASA has delayed launches by one week, two weeks, three weeks. If, you know, if the wind's blowing <laughs> half a half a mile an hour different, or if there's too much cloud cover, there's it. There's so many different factors, climatologically wise and engineering wise, that they just come into factor. And obviously, rest in peace. It's just a difficult story. And, you know, I, I Steve, personally have not been able to watch the video. It's not something I really want to see, but it is one of those things where something at fault happen. I mean, he had some success in, in previous launching up to 2000 feet, but simply going another 10 feet above that is a risk and more engineering needs to be involved and more, more needs to be taken into consideration. So yeah, I'll just, I'll just leave it there with my thoughts, but yeah, interesting, Steve, that, you know, the, this week in on the podcast, we've had some three different deaths associated with, you know, whether it's uh, computing NASA or, uh, uh, or crash landing uh, rockets. So um, kind of an unusual topic to talk about, but uh, yeah, I mean, everybody has their place within the tech space and that's why we wanted to highlight these, these deaths. Dave, finally, I want to talk just real quickly about Intuit buying Credit Karma. A lot of people are familiar with the word Intuit. They've created a lot of software platforms that are used, but primarily in today's world of doing taxes electronically yourself, they're the makers of TurboTax. And they are also the parent company of Mint. They are going to purchase 
Credit Karma for $7.1 billion in cash and stock. And it's kind of interesting. I find Credit Karma and Mint kind of similar in, in a lot of ways. Um, but here's where this really boils down to. And that is, and we talk about this frequently, but perhaps in a different little light, Dave, and that is data is king. It really is. Those that can very well, I'm going to say massage or manipulate uh, information and have a wealth of potential buyers for that information. Now, I'm not saying that's what this buyout is about, but I'm going to tell you for the volume of people that use those kind of services, being able to have that kind of information available and then kind of um, with smoke and mirrors get you to use TurboTax and some things like that to me is kind of a, a smelly situation. But what their intent is, honestly, is to develop these platforms and programs to actually help people. So I don't want to be so negative that I don't think that will happen, perhaps. But Dave, we're in this world that these new things come online, whether a startup or whatever, and then they start getting eaten up by larger firms. And then these larger firms have the mass behind them to point the ship and steer it wherever direction they want to go. And I think a lot of times that's what happens in our digital life now with various companies is that we are not centered as um, as people, as consumers. We are governed by these big entities uh, because they pretty much have the power behind themselves. So here we're talking about finances, Dave, which is a very, I think, personal topic that we're going to allow more and more consolidation of that power behind one of the most powerful backends of finances that there is, and that's Intuit. Yeah, without question, Intuit has become a leader in personal finance and financial applications for not just young consumers, but middle-aged consumers and, and older customers as well. And Intuit, as you mentioned, parent company of TurboTax and Mint, now owner of Credit Karma, and I don't blame Intuit, Steve, for moving in the direction they have. I mean, Intuit as a financial institution looked at TurboTax as a great way to start gathering information and starting as sort of a, a base of we're going to provide tax service. Then you get Mint, which is more into financial planning and you know tracking of your budgets and your expenses. And now you're getting into Credit Karma. And so they're really looking to become more of a like an all-in-one online financial assistant for people, right? Because now you can do credit scores, you can file taxes, you can help people with loans, you can do financial products, you can do financial planning. So they've really created quite an empire for themselves. And I can't blame them for doing it. I could see someone like H&R Block or Jackson Hewitt Financial doing something very similar where they're starting to gobble up these different resources and applications. But let's not get this wrong, Steve. You said you didn't want to go too negative, but I'm going to. I mean, let's be honest. Credit Karma grew to be billions of dollars of, of value because people gave them access to their credit scores. And then Credit Karma, of course, used all that information to just simply serve them advertisements for their new new cars, uh, cards and loans. I mean, we all knew it. You go free credit karma, free credit report. It comes with an attachment. Even credit karma came out and said, I'm not sure exactly what year, but they have over like 2,600 data points on each of its customers. 2,600 data points simply 
from your financial information. That is mind-blowing, Stephen. You think of how many cons- customer, their, what their customer base number is times 2,600 data points. You can imagine how dialed in they can provide you with advertisements, rich, targeted advertising. And that's exactly how Credit Karma got to be. And that's no fault of their own. That's the industry. That's the realm in which we're allowing them to operate at this point. Consumers should know exactly what's happening. And most of us know when we sign up for a free service or even for a paid service, we know to what degree our privacy is at risk, what sort of information is being taken from us. So yes, they're going to become a great online resource, financial assistant for people, credit scores, taxes, loans, financial products, credit cards, everything in between. But they're also doing that at a substantial risk for consumer data. And I think that's ultimately one of the biggest risks that that's ultimately a risk with any company, any startup, any long range, well uh, machined, like even blue chip stock company right now. It's it's all about data and it's all about that personal information. But you, you just have to be careful. Credit Karma has 100 million consu- uh, customers right now. A third of all Americans have a credit profile and half of millennials have credit card profiles with Credit Karma. That's a sizable chunk of the population, Steve. And that's exactly why Intuit went with this because they can now start pushing their own services, TurboTax, Mint. And I don't blame them. Just we have to understand the world in which we're operating now. And that's personal data. And now personal financial data is more profitable than ever before. If you know me, a lot of times I uh, go back to the day. And years ago, when you would apply for credit to make some kind of purchase, you end up going to the place and you had to take your your check stubs and your water bill and just piles of paper to be able to, number one, just apply. As we're now, boom, 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 into the computer, right? Spits out the information. And then it would be, once you applied, a few days before, if you knew you were approved for the loan to, i.e., purchase a car, let's say. If you weren't, then, of course, you had to wait. Usually it took at least 30 days to get some type of letter from the credit agency that reported on you as to why the decline happened. And it was graphical and it was co- co- um, had codes. And to be honest with you, you still didn't know. I appreciate to a, some degree And each one of these agencies and these sites and these companies are a little bit different, but that the consumer now has a better avenue in to see what's going on with their credit and have some courses of action and more simpler ways. But when some organization or some company has taken the bull by the horns to, I feel, really take advantage of somebody's financial information. Uh, that's not cool. That's not cool. So I think we've gone from something that was very difficult to do not too many years ago to something that is that is very simplistic, but has bad repercussions from you in terms of somebody has all that information about you. It's interesting. I don't know if this one is going to have to go through the feds or not to be approved, but you would think so if it's a if it's a a, a financial kind of merger buyout, whatever the case may be. But, um, you know, keep your ears to the wall because what what happens with some of these companies are very, very important because they affect all of us. Well said, Steve. And I think that is going to wrap up episode 481 of the podcast. Steve, any final words before we head on out for this week? Only that um, 
Let me think about this because I was not anticipating doing an outro based on your selection of verbiage at the end of this magnificent podcast episode. So with that said, I'm going to say no. <laughs> Fair enough. That's we, we just exhausted 30 minutes of talking. So I, I, I can understand it being at a loss of words. To- totally fine. Yeah. So to find recent episodes of the podcast and to connect with us on social media, all you have to do is head over to thewavesoftech.com. And of course, be sure to come back next week. Steve and I are going to be diving into more technology discussion. So for now, thanks for tuning in and don't forget to keep on teching.